right. Well, we are fast approaching the conclusion of 2 Thessalonians. We have definitely lowered the landing gear, and we're on final approach. And I want to say that next week, Lord willing, we will conclude our study. And following the conclusion of our study of 2 Thessalonians, we will commence uh, our our uh, exposition of the book of Genesis. So it should be an exciting uh, study. So I want to invite you to stick along with us. But for now, I want to invite you to open in your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we read verses 6 through 15. 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word, how it is meant to guide and shape and direct. Lord, grant that we would indeed submit ourselves to it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, in Christian theology, there are basically two categories. There's law and there's gospel, okay, as categories, theological categories. Gospel is anything God does for us, that God gives to us, the great indicatives of Scripture, the things that are. God God loves you and lavishes grace upon you. That's gospel. But there's law. And law as category is anything that God requires of us, any of the commands of Scripture. And so in our worship services, when we speak of law, we're not just speaking of the Torah. We're not just speaking of the book of Leviticus or the Ten Commandments, though those are certainly included. 
we, we use it broadly, theologically, to refer to any command that is given to us in Scripture. That is the law of God, his expectations for us. Now, this passage contains much law, does it not? Many exhortations to behavioral expectations. And this is where we get to the rub of what it looks like to be a Christian in life. We love the gospel passages. We love hearing how Jesus takes away our fears. He reconciles us with God and, and we offers us all these, dare I say, intangible benefits. We love that. But it is important to remember that when Jesus died for you, when Jesus died to save you, it wasn't simply for your psychological betterment. He was redeeming a people a people for his own possession, a people to bear his name. We are the first fruit of a new humanity. The world is full of peoples, the Britons, the Franks, the Germans, the, 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 the whoever. And we have the people of the Lord. And so in this new humanity, governed by a new ethic, we are to be distinct if you haven't caught on, we are the continuation of what God was doing in the book of Exodus when he calls out from Egypt a people for his own possession to be governed by a different standard, motivated by a different dream, a people that stands out and is unique, a beacon to the world of what life is like when it's ordered properly under the rule and reign of the one true living God as the rightful ruler. And so in Christ, that agenda is not changed. It's actually broadened. And so now this, what it means to be a part of the household of God, a part of the Lord's own people, is not limited by joining the specific ethnic group of a national entity, but rather as an, as an international uh, people, a multi-ethnic people coming from different backgrounds, different, different stories. Nonetheless, we are to be taught and brought into, this is the process of discipleship, the values, priorities, ethics, the story of the kingdom. It's about learning how to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, in every culture that I've ever been aware of, whether it's European, American, ancient Oriental, uh, African, anytime you have people who can, they want to live a life of ease. Humans don't like to work unless they have to. Anytime that people uh, are able to obtain a little wealth, they want to not have to work. They want to outsource the labor. And whether they do that through the use of slaves or through the use of serfs or through the use of servants. Don't you love the alliteration there? People love outsourcing work. It was big time in first century Greco-Roman era where a full quarter of the population of the Roman Empire was a slave. 
people, respectable people, the people living the good life, didn't work. They sat around eating dates, talking important things or whatever. The stuff that, quite frankly, Paul says is being a busybody. So there was this cultural impulse that they came out of, these first century Thessalonian believers, this impulse that said work is for plebes. Work is for peasants. Work is undesirable. That impulse. But then it was coupled with eschatological expectation. Remember, they were under the impression, the misguided impression, that Jesus was coming back like tomorrow. And so, unfortunately, as we see here, there were some who had ceased working for their own living. They were instead being cared for by people who were working. And Paul aims to put a stop to it. So, in this passage, we see the foundation of the Christian work ethic. We see a foundational character quality that is to shape the people of God as rightly ordered under the rule and reign of Jesus. But we also see the idea here put out on paper by Paul that there is a tradition that we are to embody that goes beyond the mere precept of doctrine. Let me say that again. There is a tradition of behavior that he expects us to live out in accordance with biblical truth that goes beyond the mere precepts of doctrine. Paul set forth tradition right here. Now, as soon as I say tradition, I see some of you going, oh, is this Roman Catholicism? Absolutely not. There's one authority, Scripture. But here's the problem. What we get nowadays for the past several decades is an uncritical carte blanche rejection, a defamation of the concept of tradition as something that's just done because. Something should be done away with just because it's tradition. Tradition is seen as something that's baseless. Tradition is seen as something that's just the relic of the past that we are held captive to, that we must shake off if we are to realize our potential. And what Paul is saying is that there is a standard of behavior that reinforces and flows from the ethical imperative, the doctrinal truths of the faith. And these ethical imperative, these behaviors are themselves reinforcing of the doctrines of the faith. And it's a tool then in the building up of the ethical norm of the culture of the kingdom. So hard work. What Paul says here, if, if you're hung up on, if you think that grace 
is to pervade every facet of life in such a way that that everything is is a is a overlooking of the bad then you're really going to struggle with the hardness of what Paul says here if someone's not willing to work let them not eat and and I set for you an example of how you are to support yourself that's very much works oriented isn't it where's the grace in that well there's an ethical tradition of behavior that flows from biblical truth. And, and, and what is that? What is that? Well, part of it I shared with you already. That we were created as a people. We were redeemed. We were filled with the Holy Spirit to be a people. And a people is marked out by its shared culture. And the kingdom values right orderedness. We see this in God himself. What does scripture say in 1 Corinthians 14, 33? God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Notice how disorder is juxtaposed against peace. So disorder equals lack of peace, conflict, chaos. Order is peace. And so throughout the scriptures, we see how God's people are to emulate this orderliness. You see it first and foremost, perhaps, in the book of Exodus. Just as in Exodus, the greatest example of salvation in the Old Testament is the passing through of the Red Sea. That, that, uh, that example is alluded to over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It is the example par excellence of salvation. The example par excellence of sin and rebellion is the golden calf episode of Exodus 32. And in Exodus 32, 35, Moses comes down the mountain. He's livid, right? And he throws the Ten Commandments, and they break. And then in verse 35, it says this. And when he saw that the people of Israel had, and, and, the, and the ESV says, broken loose. For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. That's when. Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? And that's when the Levites come over, and that's when they slay those who are in open rebellion. Break loose refers to the breaking of ranks. It refers to the undisciplined going feral, going running wild. And it was a source of derision in the eyes of the world because God's people are to be characterized by doing what they're supposed to be doing, when they're supposed to be doing it, how they're supposed to be doing it. And it was this, according to Exodus 32, 35, that led to them being slaughtered, not the act of worshiping the golden calf itself per se. So, of course, in the New Testament then, in 1 Corinthians 7, 35, Paul says that he's speaking to us to promote good order. 
We're told in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, specifically that all things need to be done decently in good order. He sends Titus to Crete to set things in order. He tells the Colossians that he's thrilled to hear of their good order. Now, why am I mentioning good order so much? Because even though the ESV doesn't use the word, it uses a word that can actually make us think the problem is human laziness when it's not. Laziness may be an expression of it. Uh, look, please, at verse 6. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Okay? That Greek word, ataktos, it means in defiance of good order or disorderly. It doesn't mean lazy. It means in defiance of good order. And you, and you see this translation across, you, you see this root meaning across the translations in the English translations. So ESV says walking in idleness. The King James just gets right to the point. They're disorderly, which is a very literal translation. The NIV says idle and disruptive. The NASB says they lead an unruly life. Uh, the, the God's Word Bible says they don't live a disciplined life. The Holman Christian Standard says they walk irresponsibly. Okay, they all are sort of getting to the point that they are living their life in a manner that is in defiance of good order. When you think of order, you probably think of highly regimented you may think of how the Dutch have planted all their trees in rows. I don't think there's a single out-of-blade grass in that country. But that's not really it. The idea of being rightly ordered refers simply, quite simply, to doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. And one of the simple facts of life is that human beings were created to work. If you go back to the very beginning, that is the case. So immediately dispel the idea that work is bad, that work is the devil's curse or something. No, we, we were made to work the ground to till it, to bring it under subjection, to subdue the earth. That's actually, subduing the earth is actually in the Bible. It doesn't say steward it, it says subdue it. The idea is that they were to work and tend the garden, expanding its borders until ultimately the entire earth is the garden. But they failed, of course. And so the, the drudgery of work comes from the presence of the introduction of futility that comes along with the fall, that the earth itself struggles against us. So there's a sense of futility to our labors. Oh, yes, you will eat, but it's going to be by the sweat of your brow, and it's going to be hard work. But we were made, we were created for work. We were created to be productive. We were created in order to produce 
Now, why so? Because we are the image of God. Is not God busy producing? He, he produces all of us. He produces the animals. He produces the grass. He produces, he produces the flowers, the trees. He produces the weather. And we were created to govern on this world as his vice regents, as his deputies, so to speak. And so, when a life is rightly ordered, it is living in compliance with the way God has made them to be. And God has made us to work. And so, what we see in this passage is that one of the Christian traditions is a life of hard work. That God calls us to produce. God calls us to labor. God calls us to leave others alone while they do the same. When it says that in verse 11 that they're not busy, they're, they're walking in, in idleness, that word again, they're walking in defiance of good order, but they're busy bodies, notice how it doesn't say they're just sitting around playing video games, minding their own business. No, they are busy bodies. They're meddlers, and there's, there's two types of way to be a meddler. We think of gossipy type things. Well, that's true. That's a way to meddle. But principally, this word, the two ways to fulfill this word in the Greek, is, is to stick your, stick your head into matters that don't concern you. And second, to disrupt people from doing what they're supposed to be doing. An example of that, <clears throat> sorry, is me. Uh, an hour ago, while they were trying to do rehearsal, and, and I was back there talking to the kids in the sound booth while they were supposed to be manning the slides. That, that's an innocuous, relatively, example of meddling. But that's what's implied here. Is we're, we're supposed to be busy. Do what you're supposed to do and let others do what they're supposed to do. Don't distract them and bother them from doing what they're supposed to be doing. Okay? One of the bad things that we pro are prone to do is absolutizing any one Bible passage. And this Bible passage says something very hard, does it not? If someone's not willing to work, let him not eat. I mean, I think that was official colonial policy under Bradford, was it not? And, okay, this is not speaking about people who can't work. This is not speaking about people who are paralyzed or, or, or whatever. This is speaking about people who are, who are simply not living ordered lives, and as such, they're filling their time with unproductive things. They are maybe waiting for a management position like, like Cousin Eddie. And th they're just not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Hold out for your dream job a little while, but then you just got to get a job. Work. Now, the Bible provides at least four reasons why we should work, and only one of them is listed here. But it's an important one. <clears throat> 
We are to work according to this passage to, to make our own living, to provide for ourselves. And other passages really explain this into very deep detail. But we are called to support ourselves and those who are depending on us. So much so that, I mean, this is, this is, this is really hardcore Christian ethic right here. Paul says that if, if you're not providing for your family, you're worse than an infidel. And you've denied the faith. Doesn't matter if you affirm sola fide. If you're not providing for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And you've denied the faith. That's Paul, not Ben. So we are to work to provide for our, our family so that we're not a burden to others. But second, we're to work that we might have abundance so that we can help those who do have need. We are to be a merciful, charitable people. And when real needs happen, we are to reach out and meet those needs. And it's hard to do that if you're driven by an ethic of subsistence living, that I'm only going to do enough just to feed my belly for today and tomorrow I'll go get enough food for tomorrow. No, this calls us to a life of accumulation, of surplus, that we are to have enough on hand to help those who have a need. Third, we are to work simply because our Father in heaven is working. And we are to emulate his behavior to the world. In, in a world where work is disdained or made an idol of, we are to show right orderedness. We are to work hard with integrity, honesty, and fourth, we are to work in order to have the means to support the work of the kingdom. Those are the four reasons we are to work from Scripture. And that comes as a part of the Christian tradition. This is our culture. And we are to witness this before the world. But there's a, a second tradition here of hard work in this passage. It's the hard work of discipline. Th this is something that we really really um, gravitate, it shapes against us, doing discipline. And, and there are two lines of thought that this is talking about formal discipline or, or just informal because Paul's telling us to take note of a given person and have nothing to do with them, kind of a, an Amish-style shunning or something. But of these verses from 6 to 12, only one verse is directed to the people who are actually walking in idleness. The other verses are walking, are speaking to the church, how to deal with that person. And Paul says that the way to deal with it is not to indulge it. We don't say, oh, you're not working? Okay, we'll, we'll take care of you anyway. Mercy wins. No. The way to deal with it is to have nothing to do with them. And that's hard, is it not? It's really hard to protect the purity of the church. And, and Paul specifically says that, an, that the goal of doing this is that they might be ashamed. And the idea is that by experiencing the sense of shame that comes from their bad behavior, that they will conform to the culture of the church, which is get a job, make your living, stay out of people's business, and lead a quiet life. 
which is the most admirable thing. So the hobbits would have been right at home culturally. But it's hard work to do discipline. It's hard work to hold each other accountable because we don't want to offend and that's not our aim. Our aim is to have a, have a pure bride presented to Christ and, and, and part of the way we make ourselves fit for heaven that the Holy Spirit uses is the, is the, the shaping effect of discipline as we deal with the discomfort that comes from holding each other accountable. I need to be held accountable. You need to be held accountable. And when we see someone walking in a manner, living a life that is contrary to God's word, we're not doing them any favors to remain silent. We, we, we need to, to, to do something to encourage spiritual growth and right behavior. So discipline is hard work, but we're called to it as a church. But then finally, and I think part of the discipline thing, but finally, we're called to a tradition of the hard work of guarding our attitudes. The last verse is really, really, really tough for, for a lot of us. What does it say? It says, warn him, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. When, when you see someone that's not doing what they should, and especially as soon as, as soon as they get on your bad side, in any way, it's real easy to start thinking of them as an enemy somehow. Someone who's opposed to you. That's, that's the fundamental aspect of enemy here. Someone who's opposed to you. Someone, someone that you have to either uh, uh, over, uh, overpower or, or outmaneuver. Someone who's in opposition to you. And it's real easy for us to think of our brothers and sisters as enemies when we go sour of them or they go sour of us. And, and Paul is here giving us the admonition that we are called to the hard work of regarding them as brothers and as sisters and not as enemies. And it goes both ways. If, if the church has the obligation to remember that this, this, this idle, this disruptive, this disordered brother, then the people he's talking to who are the ones who are not living in accordance with God's word are to regard those who might approach them about their behavior in the same way as brothers. So if, if someone has a problem, we don't automatically think, oh, they're out to get me. Oh, this person is an obstacle to us and we got to deal with them. Guard your attitude, brothers and sisters. We are in this together. The goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. The goal is not to drive away everyone except the spiritual special forces. The goal is to present everyone mature and show we show mercy, we show grace, but, but we also show some backbone and we have to discipline. And all of this together, brothers and sisters, is how we emulate to the world that we march to the drum of the true king, that we follow an ethical imperative that is based upon God's working, God's word, and it leads 
to a witness, not just of fire insurance, but it leads credibility to the faith we proclaim when the ethic we present lines up. So brothers and sisters, this is Paul's counsel to this church as they're living amidst persecution and opposition in the watching world around. It's his word to us. Let us pray.